Applications for the Techstars Tech Central Sydney Accelerator Class of 2024 are closing on the 22nd of May. I'm Kirsten Hunter, the Managing Director of Techstars Sydney, and I'm looking for diverse and unstoppable founders who are using technology to solve the world's biggest problems to join this Accelerator cohort. The 12 successful businesses will get access to our 13-week mentor-driven accelerator, $120,000 US investment, and access to the Techstars network for life. Head to our Accelerator webpage to learn more and to apply. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian startup ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists, to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. A Newcastle company like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer and welcome to Day One, the podcast that spotlights Australian startups, founders, and the organizations that empower Australian entrepreneurship. We go back to the beginning to tell the story of Australia's most inspiring founders and how they built their companies. You're listening to a special interview series as part of a documentary W2D1 is producing about the history of the Australian startup ecosystem. On the episode today, we have... My name's Matt Barry. I'm the Chief Executive of Freelance Unlimited. Uh, we're an ASX-listed company that owns Freelancer.com, which is the world's largest crowdsourcing marketplace by number of users. We've got 54 million freelancers that can do any job you can possibly think of through the internet. And also Escrow.com, which is a global payment system that's done $5 billion US dollars in payment volume. When would you say what year and what was the catalyst for you jumping into this space? Let me tell you, when you went through university in the, actually go, go back to the school years, right? So, you know, I went, to, I went to high school from 85 to 1990 and the concept of even working in technology was completely foreign. We've got this whole system in Australia. It's a gamified leaderboard for your final mark from high school. And that gamified leaderboard says medicine and law is at the top. And if not, maybe go start a business of some sort, but it's not technology. And so, you, you know, when I was in my final few weeks of the high school system, I didn't even know what the word engineer meant. Someone's dad came in and just talked in a chat session on careers day, not, not as a formal talk, but just said, dude, I'm not talking about engineering here. Let me tell you what engineers do, solve the world's problems using technology. That was the first time I really heard the concept of, of the technology um, space at all. And then... Yeah, and, you, and I, I sometimes go to careers fairs and the kids still think engineers have something to do with driving trains and, and <laughs> don't really know, you know how to, they can't piece together the, the curriculum they've been taught, which is an 18th century, 19th century. So, so yeah. broadly, I don't think that much has changed, although kids are using technology a lot. But, you know, when you went through university in the early 90s, you know, I was there from 91 to 96, no one was talking about starting their own company. I did start my own company. It was, it was really a product company. Just for a bit of extra pocket money, I started a company printing uh, mouse pads, <laughs> of all things. Nice. Uh, you know, and, and it really came out because I had a few friends in a room. We said, gee, you can make money doing anything. You can make money picking up garbage. And I just said, I pointed randomly around the room, we can make this. And I just pointed randomly at the table as a mouse pad and I said, why don't we print them? But no, no one was talking about that. The pinnacle career for technology back then was 
going to, to do advanced study, getting a PhD and then becoming a professor. And that was basically the career track of technology. Mm. What everyone was doing, however, was contracting. So everyone uh, in, you know, in the 94, 95, 96 was contracting, which is effectively freelancing yeah. for other people's <laughs> companies. And people were talking about making $100 an hour or $200 an hour or whatever it may be. But that's what everyone was doing. And, that, and, and you're working on someone else's business doing some sort of software. But it wasn't really, the concept of startups was still very foreign. I went to Stanford in 97 to do a master's in electrical engineering. And let me tell you, that was when people were just starting to talk about these sort of things. I remember opening, I think, Wide Magazine. It was talking about the concept of a venture capitalist. And these are people that fund people who've got crazy ideas to go and start technology-driven businesses. And I thought, this is just incredible. And then when I got to Stanford, that was really the start of the, 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 the big dot-com boom, where... Um, Obviously, there was a history before that with Hewlett-Packard and Sun Microsystems and so forth. But, well, Sun actually was probably around contemporary at the time. But it was just starting to get going. Yahoo had started. Excite had started. And I walked into the first class I did, which is called Technology Entrepreneurship, IE273. And 40 people in the class, 10 teams of four people, CEO, CTO, head of sales and marketing, and a CFO. And you have to basically come up with an idea, work on a business plan for the class, and pitch it. And I, I cut a very, very long story short because I know we're going to talk about the Australian ecosystem. But at the end, I ended up pitching a, a product, which ironically in 1997 was Google Maps effectively on the Apple iPhone showing you uh, where you are and context-specific information. So, for example, at nighttime, I'd say here's the local bars. So it was advertising basically on Google Maps. Back then, there was no Google Maps. There was no GPS chip that would actually fit in the phone. There was no Apple iPhone and there was no uh, wireless network that could actually carry the data. So we had to design all of that. But that was really... That time was really the genesis. And it turns out that, that of the 40 people in that class that have subsequently gone on to start businesses, the market capitalization from my class alone of 40 people in my specific year only is now probably about $500 billion US. Ken Harry came to me and said, hey, I've got an idea for designing, for beaming money to your friends on the Palm Pilot through the infrared port. Can you look at the security? And I said, okay, I was doing a security subject on the Dan Benet and I I looked at the software and I said, there's no security in this whatsoever. Aren't you worried about people ripping you off? And he says, for sharing money with your friends, if they're going to rip you off, they probably shouldn't be your friend. I said, this idea is retarded. It's not going to go anywhere. <laughs> and uh, he got Peter Till to be CEO, merged with ElonMuxX.com and became PayPal. <laughs> right? so, and since then, all, all these people in that class have kind of you know, sprouted wow. up and started all sorts of businesses. Now, that wasn't happening in Australia at that time. Mm. And I stayed in the Valley, 97, 98, 99, came back 99, 2000. And you know, Sydney was taking off because you had the, the Olympics. And so it was exciting. We we're finally becoming a, a world city. And really, the guys who really got everyone excited about startups, I think, the first guys who really got them excited, there were some VC funds that were trying to get going. And at this point in time, there were no real successes, not like it is now. But the guys who really got everyone excited, I think, were the tin shed guys. So Janus Hooker, who's actually uh, now the CEO of LJ Hooker, he started a thing called Tin Shed. And Tin Shed was like a clone or a compatriot of garage.com which was um you know guy kawasaki's business basically a startup incubator sort of thing early stage investor and so with you know viv stewart janice hooker and a bunch of other guys they ran a massive conference i remember it being run it was about two thousand people and you had it just got everyone super excited it's like this brand new thing to australia where wow there's all these guys starting tech companies and there's people who fund your ideas and yeah, you know, I remember Bill Barty came on stage. He's uh, obviously one of the, the, the grey head guys in, uh, in venture capital. He came on stage and he said, get your mission statement. Cisco's mission statement was, we network networks. Just get a really clear, concise elevator pitch going for your business. And that was, I think those guys really lit the flame in Australia. That conference was in Sydney. It was around 2000. 
And that was the thing that really got people super excited. And from there, that's when people started doing regular meetups. You had First Tuesday uh, came along, which is out of the UK, which is a regular meetup where people would go talk about startup ideas. But that was really the first time in Australia that people really were thinking and talking about startups. And at that point in time, there were a couple of venture capitalists around. In fact, it wasn't until none of the Australian venture capitalists ever, the Australian venture capitalists missed every single major Australian technology company until it would have been, I don't know, I, I might be corrected here, but I would say the late 2000s in the first decade of the 2000s. LookSmart was invested in by Macquarie. But at the time, the VCs were very small in terms of their fund size, maybe a $30, $40 million fund would be about the size. Most of the funds were captured, so they were part of an investment bank. So Macquarie Bank would have their own venture arm and this, that, the other. You had Champ, Castle Highland Aussie Mezzanine Partners, which is Bill, Bill Ferris. What I'm saying. <laughs> uh, so Bill Ferris had pioneered venture capital in, in Australia and uh, he had his own fund. But really, up until the dot-com crash, every single major technology company that started in Australia had been missed. LookSmart was invested in by Macquarie and it listed in the US. Then unfortunately what happened was Champ sold out their, their holding because they said our mandate says that when we get um, an exit, we have to sell, which is the role of a VC, take it from private to public or an exit. Macquarie had the, their capital markets team pitching LookSmart for other work to do, placements and this at the other. And as a result, there was a, a lockup period that was extended on the uh, Macquarie Bank holding. And when the dot-com crash hit, Macquarie were caught up in that. So that's when all the venture funds started getting spun out of all the major investment banks. They said, gee, we can't actually, this model doesn't work because the minute the company goes public, if we haven't sold out completely of our holding, which is not always logistically possible, we can get put into blackout periods where we can't actually exit up our position and the stock could move to the downside and you know, we won't be able to exit our position. So that's, that's when the funds all started to, to spring up that were that's, that's spun out of the banks and re, rebadged, renamed and, and, and so forth. Yeah. But even through the 2000s, I remember my last company before this was a company called Sensory Networks. I raised a traditional Series A financing to that business in 2001. It was your, your traditional raised $4 million in a Series A. Yep. It was tranched. You know, I had multiple Australian investors in there. I had uh, Deutsche Bank and uh, Technology Venture Partners early on. But then eventually I collected the whole set of Australian venture capitalists. <laughs> I had anyone who had any money left, I'd, I'd taken a little bit from them. I had a little bit from Allen and Buckridge. They were another early VC that, was, that, was, that were pioneers. Roger Allen and Roger Buckridge and uh, David Landers, who's a phenomenal guy, backed me from the very beginning, even though he didn't have a lot of money left in his fund. And Jafco out of Asia, who had the remit of Asia, everything except Japan and China, and so all the non-interesting bits uh, at the time, <laughs> which included Australia and so forth. But um, through the 2000s, you know, you've got to remember, it, wasn't, it was before the, high, the whole Y Combinator phenomenon. And so it was very much your Series A was $4 million, $5 million dollars, you raise your Series A, you raise, you hire a lot of people before AWS or anything like that. You know, you weren't using platforms as a service, or software as a service. You've got your own servers running in a facility somewhere, and it's very expensive to get going and, and, yeah. and so forth. The real renaissance, and then the whole startup thing kind of died off for a period of time. And the dot com crash, a lot of people's companies had failed. And let me tell you, through the two thousands until really the rise of sort of Atlassian and their sort of compatriots, there are a lot of startup founders who had their companies blow up. 
And let me tell you, when you know when I left Sensory in 2006, later on it exited to Intel and sold, and I was atoned for all my sins. But you know, when I left, it hadn't really set the world on fire, and it hadn't exited. And trust me, in Australia, when you walk in you, for the next two years, just like I said I, to the to the, the interviewer, I, I don't want to be asked about the how did I start freelance because it's been 13 years of this. Mm-hmm. You know, for the first two years of walking out of a startup that hadn't set the world on fire and had a successful exit, the first question you get asked in every business setting is. What happened at Sensory? And let me tell you, after two years of that, and you know, this is a dark moment in an entrepreneur's journey where maybe the company you left, a company hasn't really set the world on fire. You hired a lot, hired a lot of really great people. You've, you've really tried. You've you had a reality distortion field running in, in terms of trying to make the business really work, even maybe the model was wrong. And trust me, in yeah. your first company, you get everything wrong. You get product market fit wrong. You get the wrong investors. You get the wrong business model. You, you, like just everything goes wrong because. Typically, the first time around, you come in love with the technology. I want to do something in blockchain, or I want to do something in fintech, or I want to do something in yeah. semiconductors. In my case, and security. So you're trying to engineer what's a product that hits the intersection of security and chips. Let's build a security chip. It's, you're a solution looking for a problem, not um, a problem looking for a solution, right? So you, you always going to muck up your first couple of companies. Takes about the third time before you really understand and get it right, unless you're incredibly lucky. But yeah, around the 2000s, tech kind of died off in a big way because you had the dot com crash and yeah, everyone was making fun of, of startups. You had a dot bomb and all the, the startup the movie came out, all the ridiculous ideas. People were ridiculing pets.com. So it really died away for, for quite a number of years. Ironically, that's the best time you could start a company is in the crash because you, you, your competitors aren't getting financed to compete against you, right? Mm-hmm. So it's actually a great time to start a company in that sort of environment. But it, it kind of died away for a long period of time. And really, the startup scene really only took off again around the global financial crisis. And a few things were happening there in terms of the world. You had an intersection of a financial crisis. So people were being laid off and put out of work and stock market was crashing around the world and this, that, the other. So there's three things happening there. You've got people looking for work. You've got um, companies looking to hire people cheaper. And you've also got people who are looking to bridge a period of time with a startup before they go back to a real job or before their company can function again. So you had a lot of people, for example, out of work from the banks who were like, you know what, I will go back into banking, but I'm going to give, give that startup for a go for a year or two or help my wife's company or help my, what have you and work on a side project for a period of time before I, I get back in there. But you had an intersection of the, of the global financial crisis. You had the intersection of software as a service and AWS and so forth just starting to, to, to come around. And you also had a very large labor pool in emerging markets come online so for the very first time, cost-effectively, you could hire a programmer in India to build a website for you for $50 and work on that startup idea. And so the, the cost to fund these startups went from $5 million in a Series A to 20 or 40 grand. And all the stuff you needed to build an internet business was either uh, open source or free or relatively cheap, yep. right? So, you know, you know, your operating system to, to, to build a, a company was free, being Linux. Your email was free. Your voice over IP was at the time, cheap, not free. It's free now, but it was cheap back then. Your payment system was cheap in the form of PayPal. Your advertising on Google AdWords was, you know, AdWords are starting to really come of age and you find customers relatively cheaply. I, I wish I could have the economics you'd have in the early days of these ad programs today, right? They kind of fighting a bit more tooth than now. But you had this intersection where the cost of a startup was coming down. People were looking for work. People were going online for the first time, hiring people. You had the genesis of platforms you could use very cost-effectively and quickly to build your startup. And you know, tech was starting to come back in vogue again. And so that's when you know, things started to really happen and the wave came along. And in Australia, 
every time you go to a startup conference, they're always like, how do I recreate? Is this city the next Silicon Valley? How do we recreate the next Silicon Valley? Here's a leaderboard of cities. Is Austin the new Silicon Valley? Is Miami the new Silicon Valley? All this crap you hear here, yeah. right? Uh, you need a few things to create a, a good environment for technology. You need some pe- the people, that critically, that go out there and take the risks that can, they can hire to build the product. And in Australia, back then, you, you might have programmers, but you didn't have product managers. You could have maybe designers, but you wouldn't have growth people or marketing people that really knew anything about marketing. You need to have a good financing environment. And back then, it was pretty damn woeful. Nowadays, there's some large amounts of money being raised by Australian funds, and there's a lot of investors, and everyone wants to be a startup investor and put it on their, on their Twitter profile or their Instagram bio or what have you. And in my experience, great ideas have never really had trouble finding money. It's just that it can be sometimes a bit of effort. But back then, it was just it was a little bit harder to raise money. And when I bought Freelancer, I bought a website called Get a Freelancer to yeah. turn it into Freelancer. And I was trying to raise, I think it was like one and a half million US. I keep forgetting it was one and a half or two and a half million US. I think it was one and a half million US, two and a half million Australian. And I can make the money back very quickly. I can make the money back, you know, in, in a matter of months. And I just wanted to borrow the money from somewhere. I actually saw a bus driving past it. And I said, Commonwealth Bank now doing business loans. And I remember calling up the, the operator there and I said, listen, I just want to borrow a couple million bucks to buy this business. He goes, oh, I've had to get a friend, so I've used it. It's great. I told my manager. And my manager called me up and says, I know my junior guy has been enthusiastic, but we would never ever lend you money to do this. If you want to start a news agent or a shoe store, let us know. We'll lend you money. We'll never let you do it. Never do it for a, for a tech company. The environment was pretty terrible. The, the terms from VCs was extremely onerous. I've raised a lot of money from VCs, uh, and, and with the freelancer, I've decided not to do it that way. Although, never say never. There's a few things that I have you know, times I have raised money, but I've done it um, very differently. And the terms have got significantly better for startups than they were back then. But, but back then, they were super onerous. Mm-hmm. You had every term and condition you could possibly have in that term sheet. I was getting term sheets with a liquidation preference of two, two and a half three times, which meant that an investor puts in a dollar, they get paid back, say, $2 on an exit, and then they share. The, the people in venture capital were not entrepreneurs. They were bankers, and they were very risk adverse. And let me tell you, these terms still exist, but back then it was very onerous. So the point I was trying to make was being a venture capitalist, if you're not in there operating the company and you're a bit of a frustrated first-time VC trying to operate the company and the, the CEO is telling you, look, I appreciate your help, but leave me alone to run the business. I'll come to you when I need the help. And you're not being beaten around the head by entrepreneurs. The fact of the matter is, it's hard to say no because you don't want the person that make, that, that said no yeah. to the billion-dollar company. So you drag them on, drag them on, and frustrate them, right? So if you're not doing those two activities, what are you doing? You're building out your financial models, trying to figure out how you're going to make your returns, how you're going to raise your, your second fund, third fund, fourth fund. And you're just fiddling with Excel all the time, twiddling these parameters in your spreadsheet. And... In the early days, because they weren't operators, you get phone calls. I get phone calls from the VC saying, what exactly does Nick do? And Nick would be like the fourth founder of the business, right? And, they'd be, and you can tell that they're playing with a little Excel model going, if I zero his shareholding, I'm going to bump my internal rate of return by a little bit, etc." So, you know, I, I got these phone calls and, and so forth. But the world changed. So you, you then had, I think, around the, the kind of late 2000s, you, you started having some Australian businesses that were of world scale in software. Now, before that, we had ResMed in biotech, which was kind of interesting, right? You've got, you got, you got all these entrepreneurs running around Australia today with poor intellectual property. You know, yeah, let's build an Uber for cats or a, you know, pets.com for iguanas or, or whatever. And then you've got all this intellectual property 
that's been funded by the federal government in research institutions like universities, etc., which don't see the light of day because academics are terrified about losing tenure and leaving to start a startup. So at Stanford, all the guys that taught me had gone out and built a billion-dollar business and come back. Mark Horowitz, who taught me by design, did Rambus. John Hennessy did MIPS, Silicon Graphics, and so forth. So you had all your lecturers that go and built companies, the professors. In Australia, that doesn't happen. They are paranoid about losing tenure. I've got a, there's a professor I know, he's a genius. He's figured out how to make um, effectively ammonia, you know, just from air, which is a completely innovative process. He is terrified about giving up tenure and going and starting a business that would, would, you know, I could help him raise the money. It would be a billion dollar company in no time and revolutionize the production of things in, in this country, elaborately transforming the you know, raw materials we produce into something that's it's a higher margin, high value. I mean, but just, just terrified. But, you know, we had companies like ResMed where literally someone stumbled into one of the universities and said, oh, there's some IP there that I think could be useful and went out there and, and built, a, um, built a multi-billion dollar world leader in sleep apnea, but in biotech. But, you know, around the late 2000s, you started having some tech companies starting to pop up. You know, Atlassian started getting to be at a certain scale that they're, you know, obviously a, a flagship technology company in terms of size. But you had yeah, other guys kind of pop up here or there over the years. And so then the thinking started happening, hey, we can actually start building companies that are large in scale, that are global. You've got your campaign monitors and your Kogans and your 99 designs and your freelancers and, your, and so forth. But you started having a bunch of tech, tech companies appearing that were software in nature, that were kind of your startups of today that um, were of scale. And then, I, and then what happened was we started having entrepreneurs start to start funds. And I remember when Nicky came to me and he pitched me Blackbird. And I, I never invested in Blackbird. And I was traumatized by my experience in venture capital. Mm. And you know, I, my, my advice to him was broadly the lines of don't get involved in venture capital. It's a, it's, a, it's a terrible business. It's a lifelong commitment. I, my friends that left Stanford and joined venture funds, you get carry in the fund, which, which is your return in the fund. But to see that carry, you've got to stay there to the exits. Mm. So in fund one, it might be a seven to 10 year horizon before you start getting the carry kicking in and by then fund two is up and running and you got more carry in fund two and you know when you make a decision to be a venture capitalist you're a lifer yeah like you're a lifer lifer and i said don't get involved in venture capital it's a it's a, it's a you know you have one investment that has to hit out of the park in terms of the power law of portfolio investing in order to make a great return but otherwise you've got all these companies you're trying to manage out which is zombie companies and the worst type of investing is early stage investing because with early stage investing your fund is small you're spraying a whole lot of small investments around. And the problem is you don't have the firepower to do follow-on investing. You know, the cardinal rule of venture capital is don't run out of dry powder. If you're investing, if you've managed to hit Canva or Atlassian or what have you, you want to keep doubling down your investment. The last mm. thing you want to do is run out of money, mm. right? Because someone else will come in and trump you. And there's all these nasty things that happen in the venture space, such as pay-to-play, where if you don't participate in the next round, you convert to common stock and this, that, the other which can really and kick you off the board. There's all this stuff that, that wow. you, know, you, can, you can lose your participation rights, your anti-dilution rights. You know, it's he who said, it's the golden rule again. Who has the gold rules? You know, people coming in, you know, can come along and, and really screw you over. And, and certainly during the first decade of the 2000s, this is what was happening consistently with Australian VCs. The consistent model for an Australian tech company was this. Starts off with Australian uh, founders, Australian tech company based somewhere in Australia, Aussie VC will come in, give them the first two, three, four, maybe five million of investment. Series A, they go to the US, they raise their Series B led by a US investor. They flip up, or otherwise known as top hat, 
the corporate structure to a US um, holding company. The US investor invests in the company, plays nicely in the first round, and then they say, this company is really undercapitalized, because it is, because Australian funds didn't have a lot of money and couldn't put a lot of money in. And then Australia, it's a long way away. We need a US CEO in a US market with a US management team, right? So the US CEO gets hired, Aussie guys go, okay, you've been told with all the Silicon Valley mythology, go hire a CEO in, do the stuff you're good at, you're good at products, you're not good at being a, being a CEO. I, I think that's complete horseshit. I think no one will be as passionate about the business other than the founders you know, of the business. Yeah, yeah. And any hide-in CEO has a different um, psychological payoff matrix in his head in terms of, or her head, in terms of how they get remunerated in the long term. So what will happen is the Aussie company goes along, gets the US investor in, the US investor puts a little bit of money in, plays nicely in the Series B, hires a US CEO, all the Aussie guys are behind it in terms of the Aussie DCs. The US CEO hires a US management team, flies to Australia a few times, and then decides, do I like surfing? Because most Americans haven't ventured outside their borders. It's a long way to come to Australia. And if the CEO doesn't like surfing and doesn't like Australian beaches, then you know, why would he do the, the trip to Australia two or three times a year? And look, back in 97, the exchange rate was, you know, for, you know would it get down to 47 cents or something, 48 mm-hmm. cents? I remember because everything started, suddenly cost twice as much at, at Stanford. And then when I graduated, my salary was twice as high as, <laughs> <laughs> as I thought it would be. But what happened is you have a US CEO, US management team, US investors, they'll go, this is undercapitalized. I'll do a big raising at that point in the Series C. The Aussie guys will get completely diluted out. And then, and then you have a US company with a US management team with US prime investors and Australian offshore development subsidiary. If the CEO doesn't want to visit there, then that basically gets, gets capped in terms of its growth. And then ultimately it just becomes a US company and mm. it's often no one even actually knows that originally had Australian founders. Mm. And the Australian founders can get completely diluted through um, you know, successive layers of liquidation preference. And that was, that was kind of what was happening in the, in the first decade of the 2000s. When Blackbird started, that was the beginning of a, a, a bit of a new trend. Nikki came to me, I said, don't start a venture fund if you don't start an early stage venture fund. <laughs> anyway, he went and did it. And I said, dude, this is tough because you put, you put a small amount of money in and then you just don't have the capacity to follow. And when you don't have the capacity to follow, you get wiped out. You do all the hard work, all the really hard work at the beginning. And then someone else takes all the glory because they just trump you with the money. And Ron Conway in Silicon Angels won the first venture fund that he had, invested in 400 companies, including Google. And he still lost money. Man. He lost money even though he was in Google because the money got sprayed too much. So you've you got to get a return. But what happened was, I think guys started making money. They started doing investing, et cetera, and so forth. And you started having this whole wave of Australian entrepreneurs exiting their companies, you know, having been cashed up, wanting to reinvest it in technology. You know, this Simon Clausen did the same thing. He started PC Tools, which was basically antivirus, and then he invested in my company, and he's been a major shareholder for the last decade. But you had all these entrepreneurial-led investors coming into the market, and they know how tech companies are a roller coaster. Simon always said to me, "Don't get too, don't get too excited if, I, if something good was happening." and don't get too upset if something, something bad was happening. Just just keep going, right? Mm. So, you know, it, it is it is a roller coaster. But that really changed things. So a lot of money started coming into the market in terms of being able to invest. Another thing happened, which was the, with the Australian Securities Exchange. So the ASX is the fourth largest equity capital market in the world. It's the same size as NASDAQ for equity capital raisings, but it's uh, mainly in resources, right? Almost all in resources, mm-hmm. right? And around 2013, there are one or two companies that are out there in tech. Zero was listed in the ASX, and that was, that was out there. And I remember I, we got an offer to sell freelancer through an acquisition back in 2013, and we said no, and we IPO'd it instead. I, I was always saying, 
at the time, we've created this great environment for financing resource companies in Australia. You can literally get a dog in the back of your ute and just have a tenement and you can raise millions of dollars in mining. And Aussie mums and dads and super funds and investors, um, high net worths, are happy to punt on mining stocks, right? And this is, this is our ethos, right? But why couldn't we do it in technology, right? So. You know, we, we, we IPO'd the company, it was up 520% in the first 10 minutes, et cetera. And the ASX basically said at that point, it was on a mission to, to list Australian tech companies. And so that really, around that time, it was us, but also other things were happening. Twitter was listing in the US and Mark Andreessen was saying software is ending the world. And you know, things were happening and there was zero out there on the Australian market as well. There were about a 2 billion market cap at that point. But that kind of led to a flood of listings in Australia on the ASX for financing. And at that point, the Australian investors had to loosen up on the terms because when you list a company, you can write your own terms. Mm. There's no preferred stock structure. It's one share, one vote on the, on the, on the, once you're listed. And you literally can write your own term sheet, right? So because you have to write, you can, you can write your own term sheet going the public route and you can list things fairly early. Now, there's a lot of risks with listing early. early. If, you, if you list it too early and you don't get the milestones, you won't be able to raise money at a higher number and you can get into this you know, down round situation, which can be brutal. But the, the, the point is you get to write your own terms, right? And it's it, and it becomes easier to raise the money in the public markets because people can sell in five minutes. Mm. With a venture investment, it takes five years to sell your position. Generally, public markets investors, they're lovely to deal with because if they don't like your business, they should sell. <laughs> and they're out. So there's never any conflict. With a VC, they're trying to manage their, manage their investment. It can be quite terrifying for people. So, so you had competition in the financing markets. You had from both entrepreneurs coming back and exiting their businesses and, and showing the way. As said, money was coming into the market. You had the ASX as an alternative route for investment. Tech was becoming a big thing. Everyone was getting super excited again. The energy that you know, I felt in the 2000s when Tinshare were running the conferences, that was all coming back again. Everyone wants to do a startup. Everyone at university now wants to do a startup where you know, 1991, 96, no one was doing a startup, zero. Mm. And so and that's where we are today. And then, of course, the, the Fed from 2008 onwards, the, you know, the, the, the financial crisis has been pumping the markets so you've had massive inflation and asset prices in the US, which has led to massive asset um, price increases all around the world, which has led to large, in, in some ways, it's led to large amounts of money being raised by American investors who have kept, in many ways, companies private for longer and longer and longer. I mean, Microsoft and Amazon listed, they listed in the hundreds of millions market cap, and the average mum and dad could follow, invest in that business and follow it all the way around. But these funds got larger and larger because because of, of the numbers that, that were, you could play around with in these, in these sort of markets. And huge amounts of money were being invested in, in, in companies, in software companies, and at ridiculous valuations. Now, a lot of it was financial engineering, which a lot of people don't understand. The game plan r- roughly is, if you go to your Bloomberg terminal and you type in a bunch of tech companies and you plot on the x-axis the revenue growth rate year on year, 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%, whatever, 100%. And on the right-hand side, on the, the y-axis, you, you plot the uh, enterprise value to sales, which is what multiple will you get over the revenue on a forward basis. You, know, you get a rough scatter plot with a, with, a, with, a, with a line. And it's roughly linear for a period of time. It, when markets are normal, assuming the X, Y, Z. So if you're growing a business at 40% year on year, typically you'll make about 10 times multiple on your enterprise value to sales in the public markets, which means that Let's say you're doing a business doing 20 million in revenue. You know, in the public markets, if that's listed and it's growing at 40% year on year, you can get about $200 million valuation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now, what was happening was the VCs in Silicon Valley figured out a bit of a trick, right? And the, tr- the, tr- and the, the trick was, let's go find the business doing about 20 million a year in revenue, growing at 40% year on year. And we'll say to them, 
we'll give you $100 million at a billion dollar valuation and you'll be a unicorn and you'll be lit up in stars and you'll be written down in the history books, right? But we would like a two times liquidation preference. And what that means is I'll give you $100 million now at a billion dollar valuation, so your dilution's minimal, but if you sell the company rather than IPO it, I get $200 million at the top and then I share, right? So in the early days of this whole unicorn, unicorn phenomenon, these were ridiculous valuations were being handed out because the VC was effectively, uh, if you think about the dynamics of this, if the business at 20 million doing 40% year on year just went to the public markets, it'd be worth 200 million. So in a disaster, in a disaster scenario, exiting in a trade sale, you can get your money back and mm. you get, you take all the money off the top, right? Before the founder gets anything. But then you have upside because you put $100 million into a business to turbocharge it, it could go anywhere. So in the early days, there was a lot of financial engineering to create these unicorns. And then over time, because there's been competition in investments and this, that, the other, blah, blah, blah. And also some people trying to follow the Silicon Valley phenomenon has not, have not really been understanding these valuations have been financially engineered. People are just putting $100 million in it, you know, sometimes now common stock into common stock with no liquidation preference at a billion dollar valuation. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah. But effectively, these heavily engineered valuations now, the deal terms have become a lot looser in, 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 in many regards. And so the amounts of money some of these companies are raising, it's just stupid, right? Now, I talked to a fintech advisor this week, only a few days ago, actually. And he said, oh, I've just raised money. I won't mention the company name. Many people will know it. But he goes, oh, yeah, this business is doing $10 million a year in revenue. You know, it's growing fast. It's growing maybe close to 100% year on year. It's got $5 million in gross profit. It just raised money at $3.6 billion pre. And it's raised $300 million. What does a software business do with $300 million of money? Like, like, like it's, but the amount of the money that's being thrown around now is just stupid. And the other thing is, in the last number of years, you've had the, uh, the ICO phenomenon where people have been raising from crypto. A lot of people made, made a hell of a lot of money on crypto. They're recycling the money. People are paying, what, $18 million for a gif of a rock or a monkey, right? Like, you know, uh, you know NFTs, right? Like, oh, yeah. You know, so there's this stupid money now being sloshed around in the tech space or adjacent to the tech space, funding companies and so forth. So you're getting a lot of businesses getting turbocharged. And I trust me, like in the olden days, you had to fight tooth and nail mm. to make sure that your business worked with the money you had. And if you, and in Australia, because the financing climate, climate was so bad, when Rosalind Kogan started and Mike and Scott started and, and, and I started and a few other people started, we didn't raise big amounts of money. You basically tried to scrape it together off credit cards and friends and family and, and bootstrap it. And that's why we've produced, I think, such great operators of world-class businesses in Australia because you, the financing environment was so bad mm. that you had to make the business model work. And you had to do it in a remote market that was so far away from everyone else that had, didn't have the expertise that you needed to build a business. Like even today, you want to find someone in product management and web, there's basically no one. I've trained in my company probably half the industry you know, from first principles. You know, you, you know you, 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 the growth phenomenon it's fairly new trying to find people who are growth marketing, understanding marketing properly, what have you. But you're a long way away, small market, et cetera, and so forth. It's very, very tough to build a business here. And the people who have done so successfully, when they finally do take it to the US or take it global, they're killing it because they're just so good at operating their business. They're great operators. Well, in the Valley, you have a lot of people that raise a lot of money. And if you put $100 million into any business, it's going to move for a little bit before, before you've got reality kicking in. So we're in a, we're in a pretty amazing time now in that... You know, you've got Afterpay's just gone, was it 
40 billion US valuation squares mm. come to acquire it, et cetera. You've got a few of these businesses now, they've gotten the many tens of billions of dollars market cap that have shown Australian entrepreneurs can build world leaders in their space, can exit or IPO, exit into the trade sale or IPO their business and get them into the, the high double digit billions uh, market cap. They, they can raise money now from VCs and $100 million plus at a time. And, you know, really it's, it's created a lot of excitement and, you know, it's in a, in a phenomenally different place than where it was a decade ago. Very, very different place. I want to ask you the advice question. If you could tell a brand new founder that is coming to you one thing that would help them, what would you tell them? <sighs> okay, so I regret giving some advice to startup founders that I gave for many years. And I want to explain that. I taught it. I went to Stanford and I taught at Sydney University just on Friday afternoons, adjunct. I'll do my tech company during the week and 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. I go teach. And I taught, I taught cryptography for 14 years and hire the hackers. So that was my little secret pipeline of hiring great, great software developers was I just teach all the hackers and hire the best. <laughs> and then I eventually started teaching entrepreneurship. And the advice I gave back then was it was never a better time to start a company, right? Go out there. Your final year of university, you don't have a girlfriend, you don't have a boyfriend, you don't have a house, you don't have marriage, a mortgage, a picket fence, a dog, mm -hmm. a mower. Go out there and take a risk. It's so easy and so cheap to do so. You can start a business now at 20 grand, 40 grand off the back of a credit card. Hire freelancers to do it cheaply for you using my website, whatever it may be. Freelancer.com. Yep. <laughs> whatever, whatever it may be. And you know, what's the risk? The risk is you have two years of great experience, you blow up and you're exactly where you are without a girlfriend or a boyfriend, without a house, without a mortgage, you know, but now's the time of your life you can take a risk, it's gonna get harder later on. Mm. Now, that was a mistake. Mm. Because I, what, what ended up happening was I saw a lot of people go out there and try and start companies. Now, most companies fail. And the problem is that if you haven't gone and had a job working at another at a company that someone else is, is, is leading, there's all this stuff you don't know how to do. You don't know how to hire someone. You don't know how to fire someone. You don't know how to manage, manage for performance. There's all these things that companies have figured out through years and years and years of experience and, and you know, trial and error, A-B testing, whatever you want to call it. There's frameworks for doing things. There's ways of doing things, right? And I saw way too many people leave uni, go and do their two-person startup, three-person, four-person startup, struggle year one, struggle year two, struggle year three, you know, year four, they're doing a different startup, two-person startup. Year three, year four, and they're, and they're struggling because they don't understand the basics of business, right? The basics mm. of te the technology industry, you know, and they they not don't understand how to hire someone. They don't, have, they don't understand how to fire someone. They don't know how to just do stuff. And then yeah. the risk is I saw a bunch of these people get six, seven, eight, ten years in and all they've done is two-person startups for their entire life. Mm. And the problem then is that their CV Mm. makes them kind of unemployable because they're used to being CEO or VP of engineering or whatever in a two-person startup and they don't want to come and work at Canva or at Freelancer or at Lassian unless they have a VP title, mm. right? They don't even know the technologies that big companies use because they've only had a website that's had 100 visitors a month going to it, right? Yeah. So like they don't understand how, how a lot of things work. So I regret that because I've actually seen a few people's careers They've really tried and there's some names in the startup industry that have just you know, really been out there and you see them on stage presenting all the time, pitching all the time, blah, blah, blah. But some of these people are in a really tough position because they've never, they've got this experience. They, they're still struggling with the base, with some basic concepts and they're, and they're constantly going from two-person startup to two-person startup. I've got, I've got friends of mine actually in Silicon Valley 
who have been have fallen victim to this. Hmm. They sold the business in Aquahire to Google, then went and got some funding from YouTube to do another startup, and it's just start, start, startup, and they just don't have the experience of of, of the growth stage of a, of a business. And I think my advice would be spend two years at a fast growing tech company following a great leader and just learn like a sponge and then go do your own thing Mm. because you'll save so much time in trying to reinvent the wheel from first principles that if you just get some basic knowledge and basic frameworks and you know it can be quite successful i mean from sensory i think it's about last count like 17 ceos have come out of that business that work work for me right and uh, product managers that come work at freelancers you know they're all out there doing all sorts of companies and and doing because they learn great things but i really do think if you jump out of university and or, or quit university, which I think is a, a, you should never quit university to do a startup. I know Mark Zuckerberg did it and a few other people did it, but I think just get your degree, learn it, build your network of people who are great that you can hire, spend two years working for someone because it's probably the last time you'll ever work for anyone ever again, mm. right? Or it could be. And you want to have that basic training. And if you don't have it, the one thing you don't have the luxury of is time. And so you don't want to spend the first three, four, five, six, seven years of your startup career trying to figure out stuff that everyone figured out decades ago. And yeah. you could pick it up in a matter of months if you went and worked somewhere and actually go, okay, well, that's how, that's how I can run a business. But the, yeah, my advice is for, for first-time entrepreneurs, by all means, in the back of your mind, be thinking about your business, but go and follow someone for just two years and, of your life because it might be the last time you ever work anywhere ever again and you just don't want to stuff around for years and years without getting something under your belt. And then the other thing is, obviously, if you do your startup, and two, three, four years into your startup, it hasn't worked. You can say, well, I worked at yeah. Atlassian or wherever Canva or wherever it may be, Rocked or Prosper or whatever, and then I, I learned this, and then I went and did my own thing and didn't work, and then I'm coming back. It's fine. Yeah, um, like in a perfect world, what, where would you like to see the trajectory of the Australian startup ecosystem go? Or, or what impact would you like to see the Australian startup ecosystem make on the country? I would like the Australian technology industry, as, as distinct from the startup industry, be a meaningful contributor to the um, GDP of the country. We have a lot of disadvantages being in Australia. We have some advantages, but a lot of disadvantages. We have a highly educated population. We have a relatively, relatively good uh, tertiary education system. We have you know, quite an entrepreneurial attitude in society. You know, you go to risk, risk-taking. We're a very small market. We're very far away from the rest of the world. Sometimes that plays to our advantage. You know, we think of ourselves as the underdog. We're always trying to catch up. Sometimes we, we're running so hard trying to catch up, thinking we're so far behind. We're actually a world leader, but we don't think we are, and we need to try and do better. But we need to be in a situation where we have a very small population that we're producing businesses that are very big wealth and productivity multipliers. You know, 26 million people trying to compete against America with 300-something you know, million people in China with mm. a billion and in India with a billion. You need, need businesses that can multiply the productivity of the people in that business. And I can't think of a greater productivity multiplier than the technology industry. Mm. And I mean that very broadly. I'm not just talking about software and apps. I'm talking about advanced manufacturing. I'm talking about elaborately transforming the goods that we produce out of the, uh, the ground, the dirt we dig up and ship overseas to uh, be turned into steel to make apartments or the, the dead trees we dig out of the ground to be shipped overseas to, you know, turn, to burn to you know, produce that steel or to, to burn to electricity, uh, whatever it may be, but broadly, technology-based businesses. It could be in biotech, it could be in software, it could be in internet, it could be in semiconductors and so forth. It's got to be a meaningful contributor to the economy. And for that, it has to grow substantially. And mm. we need to have the environment to be able to do that. So what do you need? You need great people. You know, we have some good people, but not very many of them. We're losing a lot of people because of COVID. A lot of people from overseas, every day I 
going to Facebook and I see another friend leaving. We, we will have a challenging environment moving forward if COVID's endemic in society where you're not going to be able to get people in the office to work together that easily. They're going to be working online in remote locations. So then people are like, well, if I'm working remotely, do I want to work in Sydney or do I want to work in the country or do I want to work somewhere else or do I want to go home to Dubai or do I want to go home to Canada and work from there and I'm working from home? So there are a lot of challenges moving forward. You've got to have you know, good people. We've got, we have some good universities, but I think that there's a lot that can be done with universities. We made a big mistake from around, oh, it's really around the late 90s, early 2000s, where we basically started to think of our universities as more as an uh, industry. And it's the third biggest industry in the country, which is uh, what they call education-related travel services, as it's called. It was a $30 billion a year industry before COVID, which is basically visas. We moved the universities from being less around training the domestic population in technology and more around how do we create a massive visa factory and sell visas so they can buy property. That has been very bad. And of course, I wrote about all, all, all the problems being dependent on one export market being China in my SA House of Cards, and everything's turning now in terms of you know, iron ore. You know, had, had a big rally during COVID because China launched a trade war in Australia, and ironically, that backfired in terms of iron ore, but that's now coming off in a big way. Coal, which is on the nose, and educated road travel services, which is basically zeroed. We've got to, I think, create a mission in the country. We've got to create like a Manhattan Project or an Apollo program where the whole nation is just galvanized behind. Let's, the startup nation that Israel did, let's, st- you know, it's happening organically, but we, we need the messaging to come from the top down. It needs to come from government. It needs to come from, you know, the educators. It needs to come from schools, teachers, parents have to be on board with this and not try and get the little Johnny to be a, a lawyer or a doctor and, that, and start a tech company and be able to bridge mm. the dots from K to 10 because by year 12, year, year 11, year 12, you're already on the path to the HSC and you can't change the subjects, right? So you've got to, you've got to fix it, K to 10. But, but you've, you've got to get the whole country behind this. And at the moment, it's not. You go read the media, which are captured by the two real estate portals and they hold up little Johnny, who's a train driver who has 26 properties in his portfolio that he's managing on a cash flow of $2,000 a week. And if interest rates move the wrong direction in like quarter of a point, the whole thing blows up in his face, right? So, you know, we, we just, it, things are happening that are good regardless. You've got the big tech companies out there showing the way. Afterpay is the latest there. It's shown we can build a world leader. We can sell it for $60 billion or whatever it is in Aussie dollars and to, to a world leader in payments, right? It's great. Uh, and it gives everyone gets excited to go out there and do the next thing. I think there's like 35 binary pay later companies in ASX, right? It's whatever the number is. <laughs> you know, there's things that things are happening anyway, but I think if we just got to get the whole country behind it. And we're still in a pretty, I think about the language of kind of what's come out of politicians, it's still archaic. Yeah. Right? Push is going to shove, it comes to shove anyway soon enough. Mm. But now we have a very challenging environment. I'm very disappointed that um, we haven't followed the New Zealand model of trying to stop COVID coming into the country. You had the relatively simple task of just protecting the borders, which they made a mess of a task by protecting 63 hotels and CBD, then CBD. I couldn't think of a worse place to put the hotels uh, for quarantine uh, than in the mm. CBD. Mm. And of course, when Delta came out, and Brian, Brian Freddie could tell that this would be an issue with the way that the how many things were contact tracing. And now it's all blown up and they've given up trying to drive a federal election saying, open up. It's going to create a really terrible environment for, for running a business in Australia. There's, there's a lot of business creation that's happened during COVID. But it's good, you know, moving forward, if you can't get people into an office, everyone's working remotely, you've got this open up, close down, open up, close down, which even the Doty modeling said would, would happen with you know, double vaccination in uh, high rates. 
it's a challenging environment to, to start businesses and grow businesses and actually you know, prosper. And it's a very challenging environment as well to bring people into the country. Before we let it become, you know, break out in New South Wales and Victoria, if you said there was a visa and that's for $1 million uh, and it's just the fee uh, to come to Australia, you would have people lining up around the block to come to Australia, wealthy people who would come and fund businesses and so forth. At the same time, we were doing really good work with the Global Talent Visa. So there's a visa that came out and said, here are, rather than the, the main way they do visas, which is stupid, which is here's a list of skills that are important for the nation, which include dog kennel uh, breeders and gaming attendants and VIP poker machines rooms and migration agents and, and, and cooks for suburban curry houses and stuff like that. You know, so the whole thing is just being rorted effectively. With the Global Talent Visa, what they did was they said, here's some er er areas that we want to bring in world experts and we'll give you uh, PR immediately before you even step in, step on the ground. It's in the field of cybersecurity. It's in the field of quantum computing. It's in the fields of, of fintech it's, mm -hmm. and so forth. That's the sort of program you need to be running in parallel with a, with a program where people can pay and you, and you bring in, you bring in um, a lot of money into the country to invest in things. Anyway, my point is we, we need this industry to be large. It's not just software. It's other forms of technology, which I think manufacturing is a big part of it. Instead of JobKeeper and paying people to hang around in zombie yeah. companies, I'll be paying people to go to university or TAFE and turn TAFE into a global, you know, a globally recognised institution in terms of leadership in the trades, because I think that's probably going to be a, a bigger public contributor than, than software in, in terms of GDP contribution over the mm. long term, if you get it right. And certainly a lot more people can probably enter the, into those trades than become programmers. But we have our challenges ahead of us. We have a mission. Things are happening anyway, but we could do it. We could do a better job. And a simple thing we could do to create a lot more ResMeds is we could create a register of all intellectual property in any Commonwealth-funded institution in the country and make three lists. List number one is this intellectual property you can take for free if you're an Australian company and maybe Australian founders or whatever, whatever the criteria is. List number two is 2% 2 of gross royalty, uh, gross royalty on sales. Uh, it's stuff that it's non-exclusive and we think there's some value there. We want to extract some value. And then list number three is maybe 5% gross royalty and maybe it's exclusive. Maybe if it's exclusive, you've got to pay 7% or whatever the number is. I don't, I'm just making stuff up the top of my head here. But you match all the entrepreneurs you've got running around in Australia with deep technology that we've got sitting in our research institutions, which is on the shelf because we don't have an environment whereby lecturers want to go and leave tenure. And then you maybe go create another 100 resmets, right? But you'd have to sit there in a protracted negotiation with the business liaison office for a decade, you know, trying to figure out how to get the IP out. Mm. So there's some good things happening in Australia. Certainly, there's been a good track record of companies and founders and so forth and things happening. And ASX is a bunch of tech companies now on it, etc. We're in the best position we think we've ever, ever been. But we do have our challenges and then COVID is going to create a lot of challenges moving forward. But I'm pretty excited and, you know, it's, it's, it's always great to see successes. And, and the good thing now is I kind of constantly will open, open the website to kind of read the news and I'm constantly reading about companies I've never even heard of before that's raised you know, 70 million and doing 70 yeah. million in revenue or sold for 200 million or whatever like that. And I, I think it's great. I hope you enjoyed that interview. More interviews are on the way. Follow the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Stay tuned for more interviews with many, many more amazing people from the Australian startup ecosystem. Thanks for listening and see you next time.